Good morning, everyone. Once again, welcome to Echo Church. Um, we are just now kicking off a series. The series is called Knowing Jesus. I wanted a, you know, some other type of a title that would be a little more catchier and have some intrigue, but quite frankly, I, just, I thought it would be better to just lay it right out there. What does it mean to know Jesus? You hear this all the time. You have to know Jesus, right? Getting to know Jesus. Okay, <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean we, we memorize a bunch of scripture, right? We, we read some stories, we, you know, uh, highlight the, our, our favorite ones. There are some people that feel as though they grow closer to Jesus just by being on their own, right? I need to come to Jesus, I need to be in that solitude. There's some truth, there's some truth there, okay? But many times I hear this. I just feel like I'm growing apart from Jesus, right? Or my faith just isn't what it used to be. I just don't feel like I'm being as filled up, right? That kind of thing. What does that mean? What are we talking about? And so last week I introduced a principle that I felt like would lay a foundation for where we are going in this particular series. Because I want us to explore this concept of what it means to get to know Jesus. And so last week what... Um, what we talked about was essentially what we call the communication event. Uh, this is something that I've learned over the years, especially with um, uh, you know, the communication classes that I would take in college classes. Uh, so the communication event is simply this. Uh, that's not it, and that's not it. That's, Megan's doing a great job, by the way. You are doing a good job. So this is what we're talking about right here, and, and I kind of I broke this down last week in terms of, you know, you have a, a person who's going to provide a message to a, uh, to a receiver. So Joe and I are on a curling team. And if you've never curled before, it's, it's really a fascinating sport because you have parts of your team at one end of the rink and then, every, you know, the skip or the guy who's going to be making the call at the other. And you can't hear what he's saying. It's not like he yells out, you know, go softly or anything like that. He has to communicate. He has to communicate with hand signals. And so like last night, we were playing a middle school boys team. And, and we were gentle. We beat them 15 to 2. Uh, no mercy, man. No mercy. Last year, we, we lost a, a group of giggling high school girls, and that will never happen again. So uh, anyway, so we're, he's at one end, and he has to give a signal. And he'll give this and this and this. And last night, he invented a new one that looks like this. He calls it the pelican. I don't know what it means, but, you know. But he, he gives these signals, and what's happening is, is he's encoding some particular message over to the people who are going to then slide the stones across the ice, right? And we have to decode that message. The problem is this. It's the way in which he sends that message, which happens to be with hand signals, is going through a particular field that is cluttered up with this stuff called noise. It gets in the way of the message. This is just basic communication. This is happening all the time. It's happening right now. That noise can look like anything. It can be audible noise. It can be environmental noise. It can be distractions that you have. Believe it or not, it can be, you know, that cell phone that's in your back pocket. It, it, it can be anything that distorts or interferes with this particular message. And last week I gave a theory, and I love it when I give a theory, and then there are people who disagree. You guys are fantastic about disagreeing. I really do mean that, because I love the perspectives that people come forward with, and then the theory was this. Is it possible that love affects this? Is it possible that love can affect that? It sounds kind of silly, really. 
But see, that's where the other part of the communication event happens is you're talking about somebody who has a particular worldview. The worldview is how they perceive the world around them, whether it's true or not, you know. All of the beliefs that they have, the philosophies that they have, the things that they've been affected by in their childhood, the trauma that's inside of them, all that kind of stuff lends itself to a perception of the world that they hold to. And this particular person has that worldview as well. And the, the, the less that those worldviews actually come together, the more noise that will be in the channel. And we explained some of that. That's honestly, that's part of the problem with social media. Social media is fantastic because you're connected in so many different ways around the globe, and that's the positive side. The negative side is you're not experiencing their worldviews other than what you see on their profile page. That's it. How much, how much immersion is happening? And that's what I call this center part right here. This is the immersion experience. In other words, where my worldview overlaps another person's worldview, that's what we call immersion. And quite frankly, the more that you immerse into someone else's life, their perceptions, their values, their beliefs, all of that, the more clearly you'll communicate. Those of you who have spouses know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Um, and so the theory is this. Love ultimately allows this to grow. Because it, in, it causes you to say, regardless of what this person is doing, I'm going to grow closer. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be more patient with them. I'm going to exercise a type of kindness. It's everything you read about in 1 Corinthians 13. And it draws that worldview closer. And in drawing that closer, there becomes less noise. And that's why I have that particular theory. So there you go. That, that is the gist of last week's lesson. It creates a foundation for this idea, okay, if we're talking about Jesus, then what are we talking about? Because what happens when, when we're talking about getting to know Jesus is we aren't face-to-face -face necessarily in a physical sense. Now, if we had gone 2,000 years back, we could be, right? But we're not right now, which complicates things. And when Jesus speaks to us, how does that happen? What, what God does is when God delivers message and, and, and encodes it and whatnot. Actually, go back. I'm almost there, but that was good. You're, you're sharp. Uh, it, as God, if, if this was God on this side and he's given this message, it may stop with this particular person or it may actually, this particular person becomes a conduit for that message to the masses. In other words, if God spoke to a prophet, the prophet then delivered the message to all sorts of different people, right? And you see that throughout scripture. But even when you read scripture, you'll find verses like 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul is saying, you know, He's given all this encouragement to Tim Timothy and whatnot, and then he reminds him, oh yeah, and when you, when you come, can you please bring my cloak? And, and I left some books and some important papers. Okay, is that a message for us? Like, what do we do with that? Did you guys all remember your cloak and important papers? Like, I mean, how are we supposed to apply that? So sometimes God's message ends with, this, with the person he's speaking to. Sometimes it comes through, and it speaks to us. And so this next slide, which Megan is going to go to, notice how I used a regular American hippie Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> thought you'd identify with it. So we have Jesus, who, is who we're trying to get to know. This immersion experience is what we're talking about when we're talking about knowing Jesus. What's the conduit of the message? The message is simply this. It's the Bible. It's the word that he's given us. But don't let us forget. It's also the Spirit. Man, the Spirit moves inside of each of us. The Spirit also moves in the corporate, together, collective body as well, which is just as important. And we can't deny that. We can't ignore that. And so we have quite a bit of message that's being sent to us 
The beautiful part is, is that we also get to deliver message to him, to God, through prayer, and also through the Spirit. And so we have this, this, this conduit that's happening, but is there noise? I mean, if it's God, then why doesn't he just download it, right? Yeah, there's noise. There's all sorts of noise. And so what we're looking at is this. How do we take this process and apply it in such a way that we grow closer and closer to Jesus, that our immersion experience is as close as it can be? I think that's where we'll finally figure out what it means to know Jesus. But I'm going to warn you about something. To grow in your immersion with somebody else, it takes work. It takes work. It's not going to be instant. And it's not going to be something that you could just sort of, you know, a handshake and you keep your, your, your distance. You only see them maybe once a month. I mean, how close do you really think you're going to get with somebody like that? No, it takes work. Which also means that if this is true, it will take work on our part. This idea of getting to know Jesus, it's going to have to go a little bit deeper than just, you know, whether or not you, you sit alone and, and, and talk to him right? What are the facets of who he is? What has he told us and how has he told it to us? So that's the gist of where we are going with this particular, um, with this particular series. Uh, Luke 1 verses 1 through 4 has these words. It says, many people uh, have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples and having carefully invested everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Okay, so this is, the, this is Luke, okay? And Luke is saying, I gathered all these eyewitness accounts. So as we get to know Jesus, we've been given a number of eyewitness accounts. Now, I'll always remember a particular funeral. It's my father-in-law, Lana's, Lana's dad. He passed away a few years ago. And uh, we went down to Kentucky, and they had, they had the funeral down there. And um, Peggy asked if I would you know, I don't know if it's officiate the funeral, but essentially kind of guide it along. There's one aspect of a funeral that I, that I love, but it's also one that always gives me a little bit of angst. And it's whether or not a funeral allows for an open mic. Okay? There's so much power in it. Right? Because you will have people who line up and speak, but you don't know what they're going to say. Right? If you're a coach, please forgive me. Coaches are the worst. <laughs> they make the longest speeches and use lots of ums and yas, and he gave 110%. Like, you know, it's like all that kind of stuff. But inside of it is the heart of an eyewitness who got to be with that particular person, right, in their life and experience on them on a level that the rest of us did not. So even though a coach's speech will be long and drawn out, at the, at, at the center of it is a perspective that allows us to see and then the next person steps up to the mic, and it might be a teacher, right? The next person steps up to the mic, and it might be an old roommate. And as the funeral, right, as, as the ceremony is, is going along, you are getting a snapshot of a person's life where you have all these facets that you had no idea about. It's really, I mean, when you think about it, it's amazing. When we talk about an eyewitness, we're talking about somebody who's going to give an account from their vantage point. 
What's great is this, is that when we open up the Bible, which we are going to be doing, and, and which I encourage you to do, you either need to bring a Bible, which is what I recommend, or at least have an electronic version of a Bible. I'm not always going to have the, the verses on the screen, but when we look at the Bible, we weren't given just one you know, biography of Jesus. That would just be one perspective. No, no. We were given not just four, more than four. But if you're going to talk about the four principal biographies, you're talking about the Gospels. And so today what I'd like for us to do is just talk about, okay, what are these Gospels? What does it mean um, to, to be a Gospel? And then who's writing them and, and why are they writing them? And, and what perspective are we being given? Because when we look at the Gospels and how they line up with each other, I think it's important for us to first just sort of see, okay, what's the worldview of the author? You know, God is giving this particular message to them. Or, or what, what is it that they did around Jesus that caused them to write the things that they did? So we're going to go through some of that real quick. And what I did was I, uh, I went ahead and, Miles, are you able to help? And then, I don't know, Cole? Hey, son. Such great volunteers. <laughs> You're a true example. <laughs> I've given you a cheat sheet. I would love it if you follow along. I know some of you are like, great, I could take a nap and I won't miss a thing. But uh, here's what I want us to consider is with each of these Gospels, hey, Miles, I don't have one in my notes. I'm going to keep one. <laughs> that might be nice. Um, with each of these particular Gospels, I just want us to kind of go through and, and get a snapshot and see how they're woven. Now, <clears throat> the reason that this sheet is important is because as we move forward with each particular Sunday, we're going to be going into, these, into the Scripture. I mean, this is where we're talking about Jesus. But what you're going to find is that some Scriptures say one thing, and then another account says a different thing. Why? When Jesus sends out the 70 to proclaim the kingdom of God, in one account it says 70. In another it says what? 72. Where did the two extra guys come from, right? Or were there two extra guys? You know, were the, were the two guys short and the other? You know, what's going on with that type of thing? And so I want us to kind of understand, all right, when we look at Gospels, what is it that we're talking about? So the first thing I want to talk about is this. I'm going to use a word, and you've heard me use it before. It's the word synoptic, okay? <clears throat> the term is basically, <clears throat> excuse me, a combination <clears throat> man, of two Greek words, uh, which is syn, S-Y-N, meaning together, and then uh, opsis, which means to see. So together we see. In other words, the contents of <clears throat> the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, can literally be seen together. They can be held side by side. Then you have John. <laughs> and it's not that John's a freak. He does get a little emotional, but he writes in a very, very different way, in such a different way that it really can't be a parallel to the other three. And so typically when we talk about the synoptics, what we're talking about, just so we all understand, is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It, it, you know, it's not a biblical term necessarily. In fact, it's only been used since the 18th century, but it is helpful because uh, many times we may have to make comparisons between the two. The first one, that I want to talk about is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel being an eyewitness account. Matthew was an apostle. 
he was the tax collector. And in fact, he's referred to as Levi, the tax collector. Some of your translations will use the word publican instead of tax collector. It means the same thing. It's interesting, when we talk about tax collectors, I think most of us already know, oh, the tax collectors, everybody viewed them as these evil people. But do you know how it worked? So in Roman times, what would happen is this, is they would have contracts. They want to collect their taxes, but the way they would collect the taxes was, was that they would have a contract that people would bid on. And so if you were a particular Jew and you, and you had a certain number of people, there would be these particular contracts, and they'd say, well, in this particular area, we need uh, this contract is $90,000. And so that person would either pay outright $90,000 for that contract, or he would take out a loan that, that Rome would give him for that particular contract. But regardless, when he got that contract, it gave him the authority to collect taxes. But here's the, here's the point. He had to collect $90,000. Otherwise, he ends up in the red, right? But even if he paid back $90,000 for that contract, you know, paid $90,000 for that contract, he collects the money of $90,000 so that he can pay for that contract, right? You following me? How would he live? He wouldn't be able to live. He would just break even. You got to make, make a living. And so they were given the authority to increase the tax accordingly so that they could actually make money but there was very little guideline in terms of how much you would increase that tax. So it was left to your judgment. So if you wanted to be a rich man, then you would charge people double and you would give Rome 50%, right? And that's why they, had, they were viewed with such contempt is because these people are always charging as much as they possibly can without being lynched. And so that's the kind of person that Matthew is. He's not exactly seen as a very credible person to, in, in many people's eyes, but he's the one that Jesus said, follow me. And he literally left his stand, you know, a little tax stand. I picture like a lemonade stand. Anyway, right there. And, and followed Jesus. And that's the author of this particular book. It's kind of interesting because if you were to look through Matthew, you would notice that there's some obvious organization and a strong fondness for numbers. Because obviously Matthew Matthew, as a, as a tax collector, is going to have a keen interest in mathematical precision, right? It's possible that Matthew used quite a bit of Mark's gospel. So you have to understand that Matthew, uh, the gospel was probably written, and this is always up for debate, probably around 80 AD. Mark's account was written much earlier in, in the 60-something, probably 67 AD. And so it's, it's, it's guessed that because all, almost all of Mark's content is found in Matthew, that Matthew probably stole, can I say stole? Can you do that with gospels? Steal content from Mark's account. The intended audience was Jewish. And we're going we're gonna to really hone in on this later. It's a Jewish audience. He's writing specifically to the Jews. And you know that straight out of the gate. He is going to talk about prophecy more than any other author. He's going to make sure that people understand that there's this key word, and the word is fulfilled. Fulfilled. In other words, the Jews are walking into the situation, and if they're going to talk about Jesus, there's a whole lot of skepticism, although they know there's a lot of prophecy that has been pointing towards a Messiah. Has that prophecy been fulfilled? Matthew will make sure that you understand. Here's a prophecy that's been fulfilled. Here's a prophecy that's been fulfilled. And so he's going to harp on that quite a bit. He put a lot of importance on people having faith in Jesus. And he also put a lot of importance on the fact that people who did not have faith in Jesus were often criticized by Jesus for that very thing. 
And linked to that, Matthew would make it a point to say, if you follow Jesus and you follow him faithfully, you have the power to do so much good. He would show story after story and teaching after teaching uh, around that particular uh, topic. And then the other thing, of course, that he would talk about, as well as Mark and several others, was the concept of, I've said this before, what's the most talked about subject that Jesus, that Jesus talks about? Anybody know? It's not money. Kingdom. He's going to talk about kingdom. Kingdom, 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 right? There's going to be all sorts of, of, of comments about it, but Matthew's kind of interesting. He he provides a fresh perspective of this idea of kingdom because he allows Jesus, allows Jesus, he records Jesus giving stories, parables, allegories, teachings. He never comes down and defines what the kingdom is or how you necessarily enter it other than Jesus' cryptic sayings. And you're going to find a lot of that in Matthew. The Gospel of Mark. So if you're a new believer... Or if you are studying with somebody or if you know somebody who's interested in reading the Bible and all they want to do is they want to read the gospel part. They want to read Jesus, right? Mark is your book. Go with Mark. So Mark is not only the shortest gospel but it's, it's, and also the earliest gospel, but Mark loves to tell story. He keeps things clipping along. There's lots of action. But who is he? John Mark was essentially a traveling companion with Paul. In fact, those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you know that the Apostle Paul, he traveled all over the Mediterranean several times, three, four times, right? Before he finally headed up to, to Rome and, and got his head cut off. Uh, but in one of his trips, he took this young man named John Mark. And something happened where John Mark became so scared that later John Mark would abandon Paul. This would be in Acts chapter 12. And he would, he would leave and what happens later is, is that Barnabas says, you know what, if John Mark comes again, we should keep him. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, John Mark wants, he gets his courage back up and he, he wants to join the, the troop once again. And of course, the Apostle Paul's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that again. Because that was ridiculous. And there becomes such a sharp disagreement that they split ways. And Barnabas took John Mark. So that's the same guy that we're talking about who then wrote this particular gospel. But think about it there may have been strong influence with the Apostle Peter. Because Peter was also a traveling companion of Paul's. In fact, Peter and Paul became pretty tight to the point that Paul wasn't afraid to hold Peter accountable to different things when Peter would stumble. And the Apostle Peter was in that inner circle, right? Some of the closest disciples to Jesus Christ. So Mark has a front row seat to this guy who, as we know, can't keep his mouth shut. So he probably hears a lot about the stories of Jesus. It could be that when we're reading Mark, we're actually reading gospel accounts of Peter. It's just something to, to consider and to think about. The main purpose of this writing was actually to proclaim to the Gentiles that Jesus is not only the perfect Savior, but a servant Savior. He emphasizes over and over and over that Jesus came to serve. Mark is um, not concerned with Jewish history. As you know, he skips right over the birth, right? So Matthew covers the birth, Luke will cover the birth, but Mark does not. He, he, he skips right over that because he is writing to a different audience. He emphasizes... Uh, in regard to humanity... That most people 
We're either for him or against him. And that message kind of comes pretty clear with Mark. He's like, you can't be neutral. You're either for him or you're not. You're against him. He also talks about kingdom. In fact, quite a bit about kingdom. And he records probably more often than any other writer this thing called the messianic secret. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's a phrase that's used because Jesus uses it all the time. He would heal somebody, right? He would heal somebody of blindness. Somebody would say, you know, they're blind, and so he would heal them. And then what was his instruction? Yeah, don't you go tell anybody, right? And of course, what would the guy do? You go tell everybody, right? Okay, so Jesus was always doing this. And what was his point? He wasn't there to be the great miracle worker. He wasn't there to be this political leader that's going to overthrow the government. Those are the things and the focus that would sidetrack the actual reason and purpose for him to be here. Jesus would constantly tell people, okay, let's stay focused. Don't go tell everybody because I'm actually here for redemption, to take away the sin of the world. And the messianic secret is something that Mark harps on over and over and over. Now let's go to Luke. Luke is called a historian's dream. (laughs) A historian's dream come true. Why? By Paul, he's called the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4. He doesn't ever refer to himself. He, He maintains a very humble position, but Luke wrote not only the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Acts. And Acts could be considered Luke part 2. At the very beginning of Luke, which we just read, he was actually commissioned to write the book. He's not an apostle. Sometimes I think people just assume all the writers of the gospels must be apostles. Because as we've already talked about, John Mark, Mark was not. But neither is Luke. So who was he? He's only mentioned three times in Scripture, He was definitely a traveling companion of Paul, which also means he was most likely a travel companion of Mark. He was also a traveling companion of Peter. He also was able to interview Matthew. There's even some evidence that he probably even interviewed uh, Jesus' mother. But he is called this physician, which means he's going to pay attention to detail. And so his accounts are very detailed. When he writes the account of Luke, it is the largest book in the New Testament. In fact, if you were to combine the number of chapters with Luke and then Luke part two, that'd be in Acts, you're looking at 52 chapters, which is about a third of the New Testament. So when people tell you, well, you know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, you can be like, "Mm, eh, it's a close tie because Luke wrote a ton. But it's found in the Gospel of Luke and then also in the the follow-up, which is Acts. He was a Gentile. Lucas is a Greek name. And so that's who he was writing to. Unlike Mark and unlike Matthew, they wrote in what's called the Koine Greek, which is sort of a a casual Greek, but it's also a present form type of Greek. Luke did not. He was much more fluent. And he was writing to somebody who is in very high standing. We don't know who Theophilus was, who we just talked about, but it seemed obvious that he was a citizen who was in high standing and had high regard for the talents of Luke. So he commissions Luke, and Luke, he, he doesn't doesn't hold back. He writes as fluently and clearly as possible. His book was written probably around 86 AD, and uh, the main purpose, if you want to sum it up with one word, would be Savior. Now, he also refers, and many times, to the companionship that he had, right? The fellowship. Can we call it that, or does that take you to the Lord of the Rings? You know, the, the, the fellowship around Jesus Christ. And so friendship, being a friend of Christ was also one of the things that is emphasized in the gospel 
of Luke. As I already said, he met a number of different people, key people. And so as he's doing this, he's collecting notes. He's collecting stories. Now keep in mind, it's inspired. Like the Holy Spirit is moving within all of these particular guys, right? But there's a human element that's involved as well. And he's, he's collecting his data, right? He's getting all of his papers together. And it seems obvious that Paul specifically had a strong affection for Luke. And perhaps he had an affection for his uh, thoroughness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, Paul is saying, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. This is at the end of his letter to, to the young man, Timothy. He says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. He's gone to Thessalonica. And Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Paul is saying, everyone has left me. But then he says this, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he also will be helpful to me in my ministry. But Luke is faithful. He's obviously kind of humble as well. He emphasizes the glory of God. You can see it in the, the song of the angels in chapter 2. You can see it in the triumphal entry of, uh, of Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem in Luke 19. You can see it in the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration in chapter 9. He's got a strong emphasis that God will be glorified. And also in the way in which Jesus was resurrected and the way that he talks about that as well. Glory, God's glory, Jesus' glory are one of the, the key emphases of Luke. Regarding humanity, Jesus, I mean Luke wants to hone in on the fact that Jesus is human. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but Jesus is human. All right, as we're trying to come closer and closer into what it means to know Jesus, that's essential. So this gospel is going to talk about his humanity. The next gospel, though, we'll be talking about his deity. It's also fascinating that in Luke, he puts a, a sort of a middle-of-the-road um, turning point. It's literally a turning point. We talked about this last year, actually, when I was uh, sharing Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. But in Luke chapter 9 is where Jesus and his ministry and whatnot finally turns his face toward Jerusalem. And in turning his face toward Jerusalem, we get to see a focus, not just in his travels necessarily, but in the fact that he is here for a specific reason. And it's the cross. And he's facing it. And Luke, almost in dramatic fashion, guides us in that, that particular way. One last thing about Luke's account. It was meant to be read out loud. It seems like there's enough evidence to show that the style in which it is, has, has been you know, written down and whatnot, that the Christians would read it aloud, but also in the time that it was written. So there's all this debate about when Luke was written. It could have been in, in the time of Nero, you know, mid-60s AD, or what about the destruction of Jerusalem? Seems odd that someone so thorough wouldn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem in his writing. But either way, it was a bad time to be a Christian. Like things were rough. And so just like with the, um, the first letter of Peter, this would be one of those documents that would be read aloud because it would re, you know, bring that foundation of why people were suffering as much as they were. And so it was a huge source of encouragement. The fourth gospel is written by John. And this is John the Apostle. Uh, of course, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never calls himself John in the, in the text. Otherwise, you know, the, the text would be considered to be uh, anonymous, but almost all scholars agree this is the Apostle John who, who wrote this particular uh, text. He is a, a fisherman that is now turned into a theologian. He wrote this particular book very late in life. 
And so it, it probably even is, is later than his revelation that you find at the, at the back of your Bibles, that very last book. But he, he eventually ends up in Ephesus. And you kind of get a sense of it because he's not as concerned with detail. He's not as concerned with, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, which is why he's kicked out of the synoptics, right? It's because of John that we even have this idea of the synoptics because his gospel is so different. It's almost like he's just sitting there pondering. He's like, oh, let me tell you about Jesus, you know. He was awesome, you know. And he's writing all this down, and he's, and he's talking about the concepts of love. His intended audience, it's hard to know. Jews, Greeks, it's funny because some people, those who see it as a Greek audience, they're like, well, look at the very beginning. When the word became flesh, word, that's logos. That's a Greek word. It's a Greek concept, which plays also in Greek philosophy. So obviously this is to the Greeks. But then the Jews look at it and say, but yeah, but look at how often he uses the word Messiah. Greeks wouldn't have any idea about what a Messiah is, but the Jews would. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They know very well what the Messiah is. So this is written to the Jews. Bottom line, it's written to the church. That's what you should just, you should just go with that. The main purpose of his writing, I, I seriously think, I think he had a ball. I think it was contemplative. I think he was writing almost for the enjoyment of it. It's, it's like, you know, he's, he's going through his mind in terms of the things that have happened to him. He's kind of given a 30,000-foot view, and it's, it's divided in this weird way. It's like he has a prologue, which is chapter 1. He starts with talking about the Word becoming flesh. He's talking about light coming into darkness. You know, he's very poetic, right? And it's this weird prologue. Then he has two sections. The first section has to do with Jesus and all of his, his teachings and trouble necessarily with, you know, the Jews and, and whatnot. And then the second part is actually more about the glorification of Jesus, the second part is where you really go into some very, very deep text, including John 17, which is the last prayer he prays to God. And John wants to share that with you. He's like, let me tell you about this, right? So his book is very rich. You can almost feel it. It's like it's dripping with love. He uses the word believe all the time, over and over and over. And he explicitly states at the very end in John chapter 20, verse 31, and by the way, I do see John chapter 20 as being the end. Then he has an epilogue, which is John 21. But at the very end of, of chapter 20, it says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Some translations say by continuing to believe. In other words, He's writing not only to the person who does not yet believe, he's writing to the ones who already do. That's, you, that's many of us right here, right? And he's, he's encouraging them. It's almost like he's giving supplemental information to what's already been given in the other three accounts to those of us who are already believers. And so I hope that you can approach that particular relationship, I mean, um, that particular gospel understanding, you know, the gist of what he's doing. He loves to uh, talk about the relationship. The relationship that he has with Jesus, the relationship that Jesus has with people. I mean, consider these words from John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give to them eternal life. John talks about relationship with Jesus more than any other gospel writer, which is part of the reason why I think so many American Christians fall in love with John. It's like he speaks straight to the heart. 
So once again, just a reminder, Luke is going to speak more to the humanity, and John's going to speak more to the deity. Mark is going to blast you through a fantastic story that he covers very quickly. And Matthew is going to be showing you the fulfillment and connecting the dots between the New Testament and the Old. These are the perspectives that were given. This is the, the aspects. And we look at these things. And you see, if you know what you're reading, if you open up your Bible and you don't know why, you know, you're like, all it is is just a title for you, what good is that going to do? But if you understand what's happening inside of each gospel, you can then begin to connect the dots to your own heart. You can look at the ways that people have, have looked at that. I just want to blast through one more thing, and I'm, I'm, I'll be very quick because I know I'm, I'm, I'm going a little bit over time. But I just want to emphasize that the Gospels are meant to complement each other. Many times what you're going to have is you're going to see that there are contradictions. Boy, we love that, right? Oh, you just contradicted yourself. And we like to point at the Bible in the same way. It's almost like, ah, God, we caught you. You're created, just caught the creator in a lie. Yeah, that makes sense. So what happens? They complement each other. So there are essentially literary approaches, okay, literary approaches that each author has to the story, which is, I've titled this. The first one is this. Uh, there's geographical arrangement. One of the reasons I don't like John is because I don't think he follows a chronological pattern. But I do think what's happening is that he's following those different themes. And because of that, you'll see that Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem multiple times. But then if you look at the synoptics, all three of them will show Jesus only being in Jerusalem once and then maybe again. And that's it right? And it looks like it's a contradiction. But think about it. It's what the author is trying to emphasize at that moment. So what we might see as a contradiction isn't necessarily always a contradiction. Second thing is this, groupings. That there are differences between the Gospels based on how they group the teachings of Jesus. For example, Matthew loves to go back and forth, back and forth between stories and teachings. Stories and teachings. Chapters 1 through 4, they're all story. Chapters 5 through 7 is teachings. What's 5 through 7? Sermon on the Mount, right? And then guess, guess what? We get a break, back to the story. Chapters 8 through 9, we're back into a story. Chapter 10 is a teaching. 11 through 12 is story. 13 is teaching. 14 through 17 is story. You get the point? It's like it goes back and forth, back and forth. But then when you approach Luke, Luke writes with essentially these two huge sections. I told you, those sections are hinged between where Jesus is doing his Galilean ministry and then what does he do? Turns his face toward Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to give you my bias. If you read the book of Acts, Luke is very systematic in what happens. Thankfully, he's, he, he follows you know, the right... Um, the, the timeline and everything, and you can almost go around. So if you have any doubt, my preference is to go to Luke. No offense to every, all the other authors, right? But that's how Luke writes. And what happens is, is sometimes what we see is that there are uh, different sayings of Jesus in different contexts. For example, back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? One is translated as the Sermon on the Mount. The other one's translated as what? Sermon on the Plain. One says, blessed are... Um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the other one says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And that's it. And you see these two different, it almost looks like they're contradicting or maybe they're not the same thing. 
But you have to consider, once again, the ways in which they're being grouped and for the purpose in which they're being grouped. The third thing is this. There is a much lower emphasis on the chronological. And this drives Americans crazy. Drives all of us crazy. We like to know exactly what the timeline is. In fact, when I meet with people for coffee, sometimes I'll interrupt them and be like, okay, was this in 2016? You know, because I want to know. All right, this is how, this is what happened next and this and this and this. Okay, you can't read John that way. You just can't. You know, I, I love talking with my father because we get to, you know, discuss and argue different points and, and some of them are kind of trivial, you know. And one of them is, is did Jesus give a whooping in the temple twice? Because Jesus goes in there pretty early in John and he goes into the temple and he kicks some butt. Of course, later in the Gospels, you're going to find that it's after the triumphal entry. He goes in there, he's like, you know what, I'm going to kick some butt Again? You know, I mean, is that what happened? Could be, or it might have just happened once. And John, because of the way that he's grouping things, put that situation over here. Who knows? And then the fourth thing is this, that there are individual personal styles. And um, I love the way that Ed Stetzer, who's a, a, a famous blogger, he, he writes about style, and he says this. In Matthew 8, 5 through 13, and Luke 7, 1 through 10, we have two accounts of Jesus healing a centurion servant. In Luke, the conversion takes place between Jesus and Jewish elders who speak on behalf of the centurion. But in Matthew, the conversation is directly between Jesus and the centurion. There is no conflict in these accounts when we realize Matthew has the abbreviated story. It's only 103 words compared to 286 words in Luke because he's thorough. Matthew omitted material that he felt was unessential to the story and the elders that are serving as the go-betweens are the least important element of that story. Thus, just as modern-day journalists like Luke would report on meetings between heads of state without mentioning the go-betweens. Oh, I'm sorry, without mentioning the go-betweens. Matthew makes no mention of the elders. Furthermore, the evangelists understand themselves to be inspired interpreters, not just merely stenographers of Jesus' acts. I love that. In other words, they're, they're writing this. It is inspired, but it's also influenced by the human element of what they're trying to accomplish. Listen, I could go on and on, and I'm not going to anymore. I do want to end with this. I feel as though when we read scripture and we're trying to come closer and closer to getting to know Jesus, by understanding the context of the, of the gospels, it helps us also to understand Jesus. I want to close with this. I'm going to show you four verses. I want to read these verses to you, but I want you to look at them yourselves. I want you to identify, if you notice certain words that, that pop out, that speak to the identity of Jesus Christ. The first one is this. It's Matthew chapter 28. This is at the very end. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What words describe Jesus in this? Maybe the word teach. You got the word obey. You have the words commandments. What else? Authority. I think this describes Jesus as a royal law giver. Which for some of us, that doesn't sit very well. We still want to read 
the Gospel of John. But that is an aspect of who he is. That he's, he is the lawgiver, but it's not the old. That's been fulfilled. It's now the new. And so you have this picture of Jesus as a royal lawgiver. What's the next one? This was in Mark. And it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven on, on, wait a second. Nope, that's the same. Synoptic Gospels, right? Mark 16 is what I'm looking for. Yeah. I can't blame Megan. She's new. I got it right here. I got it right here. I did. I did. This is what he says. He says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Wait a second. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. It's very similar, right? Synoptic type of, uh, of, uh, of a gospel account. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. But these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. And if they lay hands on the sick, they will recover. Isn't that interesting? What's he emphasizing? He's emphasizing the fact that in his name, things are going to happen. But who will be the vessel? Us. He's like, go into all the world. He's talking about the law, right? The new law. But what is he emphasizing? You will be able to do things. You are going to be a mighty worker with my name. You will be able to do these particular things. And you see this picture of Jesus as saying, I am here to empower you. He's, he's this great empowerer. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, do we have that one? Good job. Megan, nice work. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he, let, he left them and was taken up to heaven. And so they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. They spent all of their time in the temple just praising God. What kind of a picture does that paint? It paints a picture of community, don't you think? That he led them to Bethany, he lifted his hands to heaven, but he, what was he doing? He was blessing them. I wonder what he said. I wonder if he was sad to leave them. He's a friend to man. And you see this aspect. And it, it's the same. It's like that. The, the Great Commission is being laid out before them. But in this particular picture, he's not just saying that the law's been fulfilled. He's not just saying you're going to do mighty things. He's just blessing them. And there's this community. And then in John, what do we read? Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ he is the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name and what's what's the picture that we have here I think the phrase son of God stands out probably more than anything else he's saying life has been given to you through who I am I am the son of God you want to know Jesus? Look at him from different angles. Cut through the noise. Open your Bibles. It's actually exciting stuff. But look at it through the lenses of these authors and what God is trying to show us and realize 
You come closer to the true nature of Jesus Christ when you allow yourself to surrender all of your prejudices and just allow the Spirit to do His work in the Word of God. Please pray with me. Great God, I thank you so much. You've given us this tremendous book. And so often we look at it and it seems daunting or it seems boring or it just seems like we, we would never understand it. Like we, we have no Bible degree and so we, we, we are at a loss. My prayer right now, Lord, is that you would change that mentality. Help us to open up the Bible and to read it in such a way that the words breathe life, that the words are fun, that they present all kinds of interesting situations that perhaps we apply to our own lives or perhaps we don't understand at all, which causes us to want to go deeper, to follow this path of where you might be leading us. Lord, help us to realize and to recognize that each of these particular authors had specific purpose, but that the message in many ways flowed through them and straight to us. Thank you so much for that. Lord, my other prayer is that you would move your spirit, that you would allow it to turn inside of each of us. God, may we please have an increase of the spirit in myself and in every person inside of this building, Lord, just encompass us and allow us to um, have our eyes opened, our hearts on fire. May his truth just burn within us. May we have a thirst to know more. And God, help us on this journey to know Jesus, to come closer to him, to understand him, to have relationship with him. Thank you so much for what you have given. A special prayer for those on the road, specifically whatever the situation is with Ethan and Elle. Just be with them. And be with us, Lord, as we continue to just be with each other and celebrate this silly Super Bowl game but to use it as, a, as an excuse to come together and to just love. Thank you for all that you've given, most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.